Welcome to the Gathering Chattanooga's audio resources. This message is part of a teaching from the Gospel of Mark. For more information on the gathering or to find additional resources, visit gatheringchattanooga.com. Again, that's gatheringchattanooga.com. And please consider subscribing to this podcast. We hope you enjoy and that God blesses you richly through the teaching of His Word. You guys can be seated. It is good to see you. No, really, it is so good to see you. It's been a long three weeks. Um, We have gone through the COVID gauntlet and uh, by God's grace come out on the other side. Um, If you don't know, I got it, then Karen got it, then Andrew got it, and then finally my dad got it, which was a, a bit scary. Uh, because we had been told if he gets it, he will not survive it. Um, But by God's grace, uh, he is currently still in the hospital, but he could have been released about three days ago. He never had any symptoms. And so, um, again, we are just very, very grateful to be able to give God the glory for um, all the great things that he does and he has done in our life. Thank you for praying for us. Thank you for encouraging us and for loving us through all of this. And I hope, and we're just still praying that mom doesn't get it, but I hope, I hope we're in the clear. So today, I'm glad to continue this uh, series in Mark, Mark chapter 2, you just heard read, and we are going to deal with these last two of five conflict stories, accounts, where Jesus has had a conflict with the, the Pharisees. And so, each of these five stories, Mark has put together. Now, Mark is not really concerned about chronology. He's not saying, this happened, then this happened, this this happened. He has grouped these five stories together uh, where they point to some very specific things. They deal and illustrate Jesus' authority. His authority to forgive sins. His authority to explain and to define the law of God. His authority to claim for himself his identity of God as being God himself. But he also, not just illustrating his authority, but he's also demonstrating the nature of God and the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating. In other words, he's, he's here showing us the heart of God, showing us who God is, how he thinks, what he values, what his priorities are. And so we see this in chapter 1, verse 41, where he was moved with compassion to heal, which is just an amazing thing that God could be moved with compassion. In chapter 2, verse 5, he is willing to forgive sin. In chapter 2, verse 17, we see where he loves the unlovable as he spends time with Matthew, the tax collector, and his sinner friends, uh, and how he loves them. We see this in uh, chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, as we get a glimpse of the already and the not yet aspects of the inbreaking kingdom. And then we also see it, we'll see it today in the, uh, the subject of the Sabbath and how it was made as a gift and blessing for man to experience joy, peace, rest, and also to do good. And then there's a third aspect of the, we see the outline uh, of growing tension with these Pharisees, as I mentioned before. Uh, We see the competing claims to authority. And then the way that this 
not only frames, but it begins to send him down the course that would lead him to the cross. And it comes through uh, this conflict, these conflicts with the Pharisees, who we'll see at the very end of this, as you heard earlier, very end of this uh, verse 6 of chapter 3, they begin to actually and actively plot to kill Jesus. So again, we're focusing on these last two stories that occur on two different Sabbaths. And so we want to see today, if in looking at the Pharisees and what their attitude, their words, their actions are, if there's anything that God may be revealing to us about ourselves that we need to deal with, is there something in our own hearts that uh, would be displeasing to God, that would be um, living, like living out the, uh, the heart and the nature of the Pharisees? And to see, I mean, we're here on Sunday, so to see if there is still a role that the Sabbath should play in the modern Christian church. What is that? How do we go about that? So for us to get started, I want us to talk a little bit about the background of the Sabbath. We're not going to go into great detail in the scriptures. Most of you have, have read uh, of this, have heard them because it's, it's uh, the Ten Commandments. And so there are two passages. Again, we're not going to turn to those now, but you might want to jot them down. Two different lists of the Ten Commandments that are given. The one is in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. The second is in Deuteronomy 5, uh, 12 is specifically that fourth commandment of the Sabbath and the, the teaching on the Sabbath, the command to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. And on six days you will work, and on the seventh it is holy and is to be kept uh, for the Lord and to honor Him as He also worked and then rested on the seventh day. And then Exodus 31, verses 12 to 17, is really where uh, it's unpacked a bit in the sense that the, the punishment for disobeying, for dishonoring the Sabbath is talked about there, and it's, it's pretty, pretty severe. But by the time that Jesus arrived, the Jews had developed what was called the Mishnah, the oral law, the oral traditions that would serve to define and further explain the Torah, the, the written law of Moses. And so this would be where the Scripture, the Torah, would say this is what the command is, the Mishnah would, would serve essentially as commentary that would give guidelines that would grow into rules that would be held up in the same way that the law was eventually. And so we get this, this oral law, these traditions that you've heard us talking about the last several weeks. And so there were rules that had been developed over the centuries that the Pharisees used for what they called hedging the law. Hedging the law was where they essentially like put a fence around it. So let's say that you've got, let's say you live up on the mountain, whichever, pick your mountain, it doesn't matter. You live up on the mountain, you live right on the edge, okay? But you've got some young kids. What are you going to do? You're going to say, hey, don't jump off the mountain. Common sense, good parenting, that's what I think. But if you are, you know, if you're a helicopter mom or dad, you're going to put a fence up, <laughs> whatever. So anyway, you're going you're gonna to hedge off what, the, you know, where the mountain is. Because you can say, hey, I don't want you to go close to the mountain. But you know what? Just in case you get curious, we're going to put a fence. Now, if you want to be pharisaical about it, you're going to put like five or six fences. So it's like, okay, you've got a real obstacle. I mean, we're talking American ninja here to get to that. So they would put up these rules that would keep you from getting close to, the, to breaking the actual law of God. And because the Pharisees were the most respected uh, within the Jewish community and 
many times the most feared religious leaders among the Jews, they were the gatekeepers of the law. They're the ones who would define what was breaking the law and what was not. They gave the intent of the law rather than saying what is the intent that God has for the law. So with this in mind, how does this play into this particular passage? Well, we've got the scenario where Jesus is walking with his disciples through a field. We don't know how big the field is. We don't know where the field was. We have no idea. But they're walking through the field and they begin to get hungry. Jesus is not mentioned as one who did this, but the disciples, they would just reach down as they're walking and they would pluck the heads off of some grain, pop it in the old mouth there, take care of the hunger there, get a little snack as they're walking through. So the Mishnah said that you could only walk about a thousand yards. That was the, what was defined by this oral tradition that if you walked more than that, you're breaking the Sabbath because you're walking too far, which is work. You're laboring. And so we don't, you know, that doesn't seem to be the problem. We're not exactly sure why. Again, maybe it was a small field that uh, didn't go over the, the Sabbath day's walk or journey. Or it could be that the Pharisees just sometimes being hypocritical, they were walking along because they were there. They saw. So maybe they were breaking the law and it wasn't a big deal to them. So we know it wasn't the walk, and we know that it wasn't the fact that they were plucking the grains from someone else's field because the law made allowance for that. That you would actually, if, you're, if you had a field, there would be a certain amount that you would leave so that people who came through could actually pluck that and eat it. So that was perfectly legal. So what was the problem? The problem was not that they were plucking the grain. The problem was that they were plucking the grain where? Or when? On the Sabbath. That they were plucking these heads of grain on the Sabbath. Now, why is that a problem? You're walking along, you reach down, you pluck it, you eat it. Why do the Pharisees have an issue with that? Because the law said to do no work on the Sabbath. The Mishnah defined uh, plucking grain as reaping. Reaping, of course, was work. Work was prohibited. Therefore, Jesus was a lawbreaker. Now, we know that reaping generally uses something like a sickle, right? So you're out in the field and you're, you know, you're, you're cutting that stuff down. You're working hard, which is a little different from plucking a few heads of grain. So you get a sense as to, as to what this was like for the people, what they were dealing with. So I think for us to get our, hands, our heads around this, we need to try to understand the Pharisees a little bit. Where were they coming from? What, why was all this going on? What was the big deal? And why were they so bent on making sure that all these little minutiae were followed and obeyed? Now, obviously, you know, if you get a little power, sometimes that's corrupting and you want more power. I don't know that that was the case for all of them. I don't think that was the case for Saul, you know, Paul. I don't think that was his case. I don't think he was a Pharisee just so he could have the power He really believed this. The Pharisees tended to believe that you had to keep the law. You had to keep it perfectly. So it's not so much about power as perfection. The need to keep the law perfectly. So doesn't it make sense? If you believe that you have to keep the law absolutely perfectly, 
And you're responsible for people around you. It's like in in your family. If you're responsible for them, what are you going to do? You're going to say, I'm going to put up what I can. Let's go back to the fence analogy. You're going to put up those things that will keep them from ever getting to something that will harm them or getting to something that will destroy them as not living up to God's standard. So it, it makes a bit of sense on why this was the case, to keep them from the actual law. So they established rules for others uh, to keep them, uh, them and themselves uh, from, the, from breaking the law, while at the same time they were often a little hypocritical, they often didn't follow the, the very rules they put in place, they were hypocritical, and they would often point out, as they did in this case, the failures of others while they themselves look good and holy and spiritual through this. So when we stop and we look at that, because I, I think that's important because otherwise those rules, they, they sound dumb on their face, right? But let's be real honest here. The heart of the Pharisee is alive and well today, isn't it? We might have it even in this room. We might have it uh, in some of those who are watching us online. And I think it manifests itself in different ways. To some, it's in the form of self-righteousness or pride. You're the one who you feel really good about yourself. You work really hard. You do really well. You're a very moral person. You try to keep the moral law. And so you feel good about yourself, but everybody around you is, is not quite measuring up. And so if, if you say it, you may say it uh, to their face, you may not. You may just think it in your mind and believe it in your heart that, you know what, they're just not quite as holy or spiritual as I am. And so we are motivated by self-righteousness and pride. But for others, and, and maybe even more, this being the case, for others it is the belief that God's favor comes in being good enough. God's favor comes in trying hard enough, in being moral enough, in being spiritual enough, so that if you are good enough, God will love you. God will be proud of you. God will care for you. And so what you end up with is obedience that flows, uh, rather than obedience flowing from God's favor, you feel God's favor flows from your obedience. And the problem with both of these is it is a, a dangerous misunderstanding of the gospel. So I wonder if any of these are you. Do you identify with the Pharisee in any one of these ways? Do you feel like you don't measure up, therefore God's not pleased with you? Do you feel like you've got it all together? Sometimes that's real. People really do feel like they are just that much better. And sometimes it masks the insecurities Sometimes the acting out the first is a way to make ourselves feel better because we really feel like the other one that just doesn't quite measure up. And the gospel speaks into your life regardless of where you are on that scale. So, how did Jesus respond? He could have just argued with them, which he did sometimes, because he had the authority to do so. Do so. But in this case, he, he reached into the authority of Scripture itself. He responded to them with Scripture 25 and 26, he points them to 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6. Now, if you were with us throughout the summer, our Summer Under the Psalm series, one of those psalms, we looked back at this very passage uh, in order to understand and interpret what David had written about it in the psalms. 
Well, this is where David was running from Saul, and he comes to Ahimelech, the high priest, and he asks him for food and for protection for some sort of weapon. Well, Ahimelech says, all we have here is the bread of the presence, which is on the altar. And each day, they would switch out the old bread, the one that had been for that previous day. They would take that off and they would put fresh bread on the altar. And the uh, priests alone were allowed to eat that bread that was taken off. And so, in this case, Ahimelech says, I will give you this bread if your men are consecrated. And David said, they are consecrated. And so this bread that was only intended, and it was to signify the provision of God for his people, this bread that only the, the priests were allowed to eat was given to David, and he gave it to his men, and he ate it himself. And that's where we are on this situation. So we have a problem, though. We've got a problem that's right here in the scripture in Mark chapter 2. And if you are really a student, you've picked up on a little issue. I think we need to address it briefly. And that is that Jesus said, when he started telling this story, have you never read of what David and those who were with him did when he was, in the, when he was hungry? He entered the house of God when uh, Abiathar was the high priest and he ate the bread of the presence. Well, now, if we look in 1 Samuel uh, 10, 1 Samuel 21, we see that Abiathar wasn't the high priest. Ahimelech was uh, uh, the high priest. I'm sorry, Abimelech was the high priest. And so, was Jesus wrong? Did he get this wrong? Did Mark get it wrong? Who got it wrong? Well, I think it's important because a lot of times we say that there are errors in Scripture. And, and scholars have, have looked at this in, uh, in depth. They have looked at the breadth of how Scripture is looked at, how people talked and how they worked in those days. And one of the things that they've come up with, and I think that's a reasonable understanding, is in the, the, the scriptures that Jesus would be referring to, they didn't have the whole book and they didn't have chapters and verses. They would have different scrolls. And so quite often, they would either pick out a particular person or a particular event that would help you know which scroll they were talking about. And so Jesus, uh, Abiathar, was not really that well-known he was one of those who was slaughtered by Doeg, one of Saul's men there. But his son, who survived and escaped, was able to do much more so that the people, the Jews, were much more uh, familiar with his son. And so Jesus would use that to point to the scroll where the story would be found. It would be like, I don't know if you were old movie buffs like I am, but, but it would be as if, uh, or something like if... If uh, I was trying to help you figure out a particular movie and I said, uh, you remember that movie in like 1942, uh, it, it had this particular plot and I would tell you that and it had President Reagan in it. President Reagan was in that movie and you would immediately go, you don't know what you're talking about, man. He was not the president in 1942. This, this, he, wasn't in, he was in the movie, but he wasn't the president. And so what I would be saying is, look, I'm trying to help you identify who that is and where it is by giving you this person in the present or this person who was there, uh, at, but you can identify them. So it's a way in which you can use something that you know in order to get to a place that you want to be. So we believe that this is what Jesus was doing here. And I only say that because of the fact that there are so many things that are pointed to as Scripture being wrong that can be explained in, in ways in which the culture understood it. All right? So we're going to put that aside and actually get back to uh, the main part. And that is, what is the connection with Jesus' situation and David's? Because David 
This event did not have anything to do with the Sabbath. And with Jesus, we're talking about the Sabbath. Are we talking about apples and apples or apples and oranges? And I think the connection is this, that it was that David, a man after God's own heart, led his men to do something that was ceremonial, un, ceremonially unlawful, and yet he was not condemned. There's no mention of him that he, was, that he sinned. There was no mention that he did anything wrong. It wasn't a problem. And so Jesus uses this story uh, to point out, to get to the point of what the nature of the law is. Think of it this way. The bread of the presence was to signify God's provision for the needs of his people. David was actually in need. And so the ceremonial law was set aside to provide for David and his men. It would be a contradictory thing if you've got this altar with the bread of presence to, to signify the provision of God in the lives of his people. And then one of his people, the king, comes and needs the bread. And they go, well, no, sorry, you can't have that bread. That's for the ceremony, all right? That's, you don't touch that. And then you're left kind of going, does God really care? Does God really love me if I can't even have the bread and it's supposed to represent me being able to be cared for by God? And so it would be a, a contradictory thing. And that's where, David, where Jesus is going with this. This story was an analogy between David and his men and Jesus and his men <clears throat> so he could provide a correction a proper understanding of what the law was, of what the Sabbath teaching was, which carries implication for all of the Pharisaical traditions. And so the correction is found in verse 27. And it's this, very simple. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Straightens it out right there. Look, the, the, the altar, the bread of presence, that is to show something real uh, that God is for his people. The Sabbath shows something real that God is for his people. The Sabbath was made for man to be a blessing, to be a gift. The Pharisees' interpretation was exactly backwards and it made life miserable for the people. It was a huge problem and a huge burden for them. Jesus' purpose was to provide this correction that would reveal the loving, compassionate heart of God the nature of his kingdom, and to liberate his people. Sabbath was never intended to be a burden, but a blessing. It was a gift from God to mankind as a means of showing his grace to provide peace and joy and rest. Now I want to jump forward a little bit from right there. I want to jump to chapter 3, verse 1, the second Sabbath story. And in this second Sabbath story, Jesus points to another way in which the Sabbath was to be a blessing. And he offered another correction. This time, Jesus initiated the encounter. Last time, the Pharisees approached Jesus. This time, Jesus looked around and said, hey, I'm going I'm to have a little conversation with these guys. And so, he initiates this encounter with the Pharisees where he brings before them a man with a withered hand. And the man really just plays a secondary role. He gets the blessing... But he's kind of the object lesson. He's the show and tell in this story. And so the question is, answer, uh, is, is asked, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or evil to save life or kill? Now everybody would have known what the Torah said. Everybody would know that there were always exceptions made for saving someone's life. The question was, what is considered saving a life? And so 
the tradition would dictate specifically what would be considered saving a life, where you could do just this much and no more. If they need some more serious help, you got to wait till tomorrow, but you can do just enough to keep them alive. So everybody would have known that. But they didn't answer because Jesus expanded to get to the heart of it. What about to do good or to do evil? So they didn't, they didn't answer. And of course, Jesus knows what's in their mind. He demonstrates several times that he, could, he knew what they were thinking. And so why didn't they answer? Well, we know specifically it was because their hearts were hardened. But if you think about this, verse 6 tells us that they were looking, or earlier it tells us that they were looking for an opportunity to accuse him. And then verse 6 says, at that time, they worked with the Herodians to try to find a way to destroy him, to kill him. And so don't you know that Jesus knows that on the Sabbath, they are looking for an opportunity to do evil and to kill? And he looks at their hardness of heart and he's angry. He's angry as he sees that and he is grieved. And so he asks this question and they didn't answer. But in verse 5, the second part of verse 5, Jesus answers his own question by his actions. He demonstrates the Sabbath is about showing mercy the way God shows mercy. He tells this man to stretch out your hand. And his hand was all shriveled up. And as he stretched out his hand, it was healed. It's amazing to see. How hard do your, does your heart have to be to see that? And, and your thought is, how can we kill this guy? How horrible is that? But he is demonstrating to everyone that is about showing mercy the way God shows mercy. It's about doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with your God. So what about today? Christian church doesn't generally observe the Sabbath as written in the Torah. Look, we're here on Sunday. I mentioned it earlier. We're here on Sunday worshiping. Why and what role, if any, does the Sabbath have in the modern church? What is this passage? What would this mean to us? It's where we, we look to see where, where uh, the church has moved from Sabbath to the Lord's day. And it all stems around this. After the resurrection, everything changed. Everything. When Jesus said it was finished, it, the mission was complete. But everything from that point on, from the point that he walked out of the grave, everything was changed. A new kingdom was ushered in. The requirements of the Torah were fulfilled completely by Jesus and therefore set aside. Hebrews 7 tells us that being replaced by a better hope. Also Romans 3 and 4 and also Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks about this. This change was demonstrated as the early church adopted the first day of the week. This, this, uh, the Sunday that Jesus was raised, and that was to commemorate that event. And they would do it through worship and teaching and communion and fellowship. In Revelation 1.10, John refers to the Lord's day as he's describing when he had his vision. And so he said he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And everybody who heard that knew what he was talking about. Because that was the practice of the church at that time. So they knew when he's talking about the Lord's Day, he's talking about that Sunday that he was taken up into 
the heavens in a vision. Acts 20 verse 7 talks about the first day of the week as they gathered to break bread, which usually refers to the communion. Verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 16 2, on the first day of the week, a collection was taken that Paul had ordered. And so we get these instances of this change, this shift of the church. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Day. It's the day that Jesus rose from the dead, having fulfilled all of the law on our behalf so that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone rather than merit from keeping the law. That is the gospel. Colossians chapter 2. I want to ask you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. It's a lengthy, I've got a couple of lengthy passages I want to read to you, with you. But Paul writes to the Colossian church, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, based on human tradition, <coughs> excuse me, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by Him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in Him with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the flesh, the body of flesh, and the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Love that imagery. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Now, verse 16 starts with, therefore, in light of all that was just said, this declaration of the gospel, he says, therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Now, let me, let me say this. Though we as a church, we don't believe that keeping the Sabbath as written in the law is a requirement for the church that has been redeemed by Jesus, we do well to understand the Sabbath principle and to hold on to that. And when I say that, according to Jesus' interpretation of the law, He had established the Sabbath as a blessing of rest for his people. And I think there are several reasons for that. And I'm not saying that this is exhaustive, but, but some of the ones that I know uh, are reasons is, is first is that God is worthy of our worship. The principle says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. If we look at the Lord's Day, the Sabbath that we have as, as the, in principle, it is the, the worship of God because he's worthy should be prioritized in our lives. That, that there is a day, the Lord's day, where we set it aside as being focused on Him, worshiping together, lifting Him up, holding out that as holy, focusing on the relationships that He has given us, focusing on resting as He rests, being like Him, because that is what He commanded us to do. And so He is worthy of our focused worship. Secondly, gathering together for worship and ministry is a blessing to you in the church. It is a blessing. It is an opportunity to do good, as we saw in chapter 3, to do good to each other, to love each other, to encourage each other, to love your family, to serve your family, to spend time with your family. Thirdly, we're, is a very practical issue is that we're not designed to work 24-7 and still be healthy. 
It's a very practical thing. If it is a gift, what is it a gift for? If it is for man, what is it for? And that is the fact that we were made to rest. We were made to work and to work hard, but rest and rest thoroughly. And so I understand that there are situations and circumstances in which people have to work on Sunday. And I don't think that's, that's an issue. Some people, they don't have a choice. But there are other times where people just like, I just, I just want to make a little extra. I just, you know, I just can't stop. I'm a workaholic. Well, eventually you're going to burn down and you're going to burn out. And I don't think that God is going to bless your effort in that because there is another uh, reason, I believe, and that is that uh, not doing regular work on the Lord's Day demonstrates trust in God's provision. It's like sometimes we, we're just like, I got, I got to meet the, meet the bills, and so I got to work seven days a week, and God's going to have to understand that. But if we understand the, the Sabbath principle is that God is our provider. Remember that, that bread of the presence was that, G, that God is our provider and Christ is our provider. And I would even point to a couple of corporations that have, uh, have implemented this Sabbath principle and how they do business. And you probably could name them. One is what? Everybody's favorite chicken sandwich. Lightly breaded. I have to go with the, the not breaded. Bitter about it. Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A, man, Chick-fil-A, they work, they do more in six days than anybody else around does in seven. Right? I, I think God's blessing is on them for them trusting him. What's the other one? Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby, it's another one, man. They've been attacked, 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 and yet they have come through. Now, I'm not saying this is a magic genie moment where you do this and God will make you rich. I'm just saying God honors faith. He honors faith. And so if you trust him, you trust him with everything, including to saying, I am going to take this day to rest, to focus on the Lord. That will help you in your six days of work. So it's a very practical thing as well as it is an honoring thing to God. But I want us to remember what Paul said as we close this out. Three things that Paul said in Colossians chapter 2 that I think are important for us to remember. First of all, it is not about judgment, but it is about grace. It is not about judgment, but about grace. He said, don't let anyone judge you. Whether it's about food or drink or uh, ceremonies or Sabbaths. Don't let anyone judge you because God doesn't judge you. Ultimately, it is not about what you do. It is, what about it is about what has been done for you in Christ. It is His grace. It is His mercy. It doesn't mean that it isn't important and, it's, and it is a form of obedience, but don't slip into thinking that it merits God's favor. Don't slip into thinking that the more you do, the more God likes you. He loves you thoroughly because of Jesus. Jesus already did it. He merited God's favor for us. Secondly, he says it's a shadow of what was to come. It's another aspect of the Sabbath and the Sabbath principle is that it is a shadow of what is to come. In this world, we have work, we have trouble, we have toil, but there is a promised rest to come when all things will be made right. As we embrace the Sabbath principle of rest, we're reminded week in and week out of the promise to us of an eternal rest to come, the shalom or the peace of God. Turn with me for the other lengthy uh, passage, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. 
And it deals with this coming shalom, this coming peace, this coming Shabbat or Sabbath of the Lord. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we also have received the good news just as they did, but the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. For we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he has said, which is, So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest, even though his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way, and on the seventh day God rested from all his works. Again, in that passage, he says, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, he again specifies a certain day today. He specified this speaking through David after such a long time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And we could add, like the Pharisees did. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. So as we meet together, as we observe the Lord's Day, it reminds us of what is to come. We experience that. This is the the already and the not yet that we've talked about here, that, that TJ talked about last week, the already and the not yet aspects of the kingdom of God. And so we experience Jesus here and now through the Spirit of God as Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the already of the kingdom of God. That we experience the peace of God. We experience the comfort of God. We experience the presence of God. Through the spirit of God in our lives. But in the healing of the man on the Sabbath. We see us through a window. Where true Sabbath rest is found. Where we will experience ultimate healing. And wholeness. And total deliverance from sin and a new creation. That's the not yet. That's what is to come. That is the promise that is held before us. And it all comes through Jesus. He has the power and the authority because he is God in the flesh. It's why back in chapter 2, verse 28, the one we haven't looked at yet, Jesus said, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He defines what the Sabbath is. And he provides it for his people through his sacrifice on the cross. So let me ask you, have you embraced the Sabbath rest of God? Have you embraced the fact that Jesus has done the work and he calls you to simply believe and repent and to hold on to him? And so for those of you who are still living the Pharisee life where you're either trying to be self-righteous or you're, you're either trying to be good enough so that everybody thinks you're very good and you will feel good about yourself and maybe God will love you. Or maybe you're at the point where you keep trying because you know you don't measure up. Why don't you enter into that rest of God that he has for you so that you can rest in his grace, rest in his promise that he loves you, not because of how good you are, but because of how good he is. 
Where you come into that rest and you sit there and you learn from Him. You take His yoke on you. Because you will find rest for your souls. And you've been trying an awful lot. Obedience is wonderful, but it flows out of His mercy and grace. It is not a means of grace itself. And you've got to do that. Have you embraced the Sabbath rest where you trust God enough to be still and know He's God at least one day a week? Where you just sit there and you let Him, uh, as, in, as what we're doing today, where you sit there together, you stand there, you sing, you, you lift praises, you worship, you give Him honor and glory in your attitude, your, your actions, and your life. This is what he has given us as a gift. If you've not trusted him, I encourage you to do that. If you've trusted him initially, but you're not trusting him every day, I want to encourage you to deal with that and lay it before him because the rest is yours as a gift. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information about The Gathering, or if you would like to hear more, please visit gatheringchattanooga.com.